Lord God, there's, uh, there's probably not a more important word for us today than the reminder that you are faithful. In the midst of so much that feels kind of topsy-turvy and so many different reports and so much sorrow and grief and fear and anxiety, it is a great gift to us to be reminded that the God we serve is faithful, that you are good and that you are loyal, that you are trustworthy and true, that you love us and that you know us and that you see us. And in the midst of hardship or anxiety or confusion, where we see a lack of faithlessness in ourselves and in others, we only find faithfulness in you. God, we continue our worship of you this morning through the study of your word, and we pray that you, the God of all comfort, would draw our hearts to a clear view of you, that you would clear out any obstacle and direct our hearts and minds to your love and the steadfastness of Christ that we would be transformed by our knowledge of this truth about you. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you can have a seat, and if you're at home, uh, you, you can get a, a donut or something. I don't know what you're doing. You can pour yourself a bowl of cereal. Uh, my name's Darren, and, uh, and I'm, like I said already, one of the shepherds on staff. We're gonna be studying 2 Thessalonians chapter three, so if you have your Bible, or maybe you've got the, uh, the 2 Thessalonians journals, if you don't have one of those, uh, we are happy still to get you one of those. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians this week and next, and I, I think before we dive into the text, it's probably worth even just making a comment about the faithfulness of God in the alignment of this text. So we, we have scheduled out our teaching. Uh, we we had our whole, our whole year of teaching scheduled in July of last year. So 2019 in July, we laid out our teaching schedule for all of 2020, all the way until like February of 2021. And at that time, the teaching team and I very prayerfully and with as much discernment as we have, tried to lay out what we thought that God would have us to study. So we studied Habakkuk in January and February, and then we moved into this study in 2 Thessalonians. And I will tell you this morning, I know, I know there are a lot of churches that are doing uh, standalone messages in the midst of uh, the coronavirus stuff and everything that's happening in our world. I will tell you that I didn't need to do a standalone message this morning because our God determined in advance, uh, months and months before any of this was even on our radar, that we would need this text today. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and I'll tell you, I, I honestly can't think of a better text to meet us and encourage us to comfort us in the midst of everything that's happening in our community and everything that's happening in our world. It is beautiful. And the, part of the reason why it's beautiful is that the, it sort of uh, enunciates or he articulates here what is the crux of his whole book. Remember, Paul is writing this church in uh, Thessaloniki, young church that he planted himself with Silas and Timothy and then had to leave rather rapidly because he was being persecuted. And so he's written them these letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2, as an encouragement to them of what it looks like to be the church of Christ, as an encouragement to avoid certain things and to be faithful in other things. But specifically in 2 Thessalonians, where he's sort of reaffirming some of these things, we've talked week after week about the fact that that he's wanting to comfort them. He's wanting to comfort them in the first chapter in the midst of persecution or the trials, the afflictions they're facing. In the second chapter, he's comforting them, and we looked at this over the last couple of weeks, he's comforting them in the midst of false teaching and the fact that there are people that are spreading lies and deception, the people are uh, running the risk of being shaken, kind of alarmed by false things that are being said. And so Paul is writing to comfort them in the midst of these trials, both the trials that feel like physical affliction and the trials that are sort of 
mental persecution or mental opposition. And so it is meaningful here at the beginning of chapter 3 that he says what is probably a decent summary of the whole book and the writings of Paul sort of comprehensively at the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, or excuse me, the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, he says, not all have faith but the Lord is faithful, right? You look at that, that section right there, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. I'll tell you, church, as a, as a pastor and a leader, this is what I needed to hear this week. In the midst of everything that's going around and all of the different theories and all the different ideas and all of the, the rumors and all of the confusion and anxiety and fear, it was helpful this week to be reminded in, in the preparation for this that while there is all kinds of faithlessness in the world and it comes in a variety of forms, not just in others, but sometimes sometimes even in us ourselves, that God remains faithful. It's helpful to know who to trust. It's helpful to know where you can sort of bet and where you can put your faith. And we put our faith in God because while not all men have faith, God is faithful. I was thinking just even of like three weeks ago and this idea of trying to figure out who do you trust and who do you not trust. My wife and I were at Target couple of weeks ago just doing our regular shopping deal and uh, we walked past the area where they have all those like mat you know like the health masks that you use to keep from spreading germs and whatever and they were completely gone this is like three weeks ago at Target those masks were already gone and we saw the empty shelves and my my wife was like oh man maybe we should have got some of those before and like we weren't quite sure how the thing was going to escalate and she says maybe we should have picked up some of those and I said no it's not really a big deal there's like alternatives you can use that are that are just as good like for instance and then right there on the shelf behind us there were those like adult undergarments you know what I'm talking about like the disposal ones I said you can just grab these they work just the same you just pull them all the way over your head and you look out of the leg holes and that'll protect you from germs, you know? And she's like, you're a liar, right? My wife can only trust like 25% of the things I say. She herself, here's what I'm, I guess what I'm confessing. She herself has to be careful who to listen to because if she'd taken that, by the way, if you're at home thinking about ordering adult undergarments and wearing them on your head, don't do that. But if you do it, send me a photo of that. I'd just like to see a picture of that. But all that to say, you can't trust all of these things, but where do we find faithfulness? We find it in God. This isn't just a summary of Paul's thinking in this particular book. It's a summary of everything that he teaches and everything he would use to comfort us. Let me just remind you of some of the things that Paul has already said just in 2 Thessalonians again. See if this doesn't refresh your memory if you've been in this study with us. Already in this book in chapters one and two, Paul has said that God is transforming you that he will administer justice, that he will give us rest, that he is returning, that he will gather us to himself, that he is in control, that he has given us the truth, that he loves us, that he has chosen us, that he calls us, that he will save us, that he is sanctifying us, that he will ultimately glorify us. He's affirmed here that God has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace and that even though he's already given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, remember at the end of chapter two, he still is committed to comforting us, right? To comforting us in an ongoing way in every good work and word. Let me tell you, all of those promises and all of those affirmations only matter, they're only worth wrapping your arms around because God is faithful. Not all men and women have faith. We can't find faithfulness everywhere, but we can find it in the person and character of God. So the place we start this morning as we're going to look at these five verses in the beginning of chapter three is by reminding ourselves that the character of God is the basis for our confidence. 
It isn't based on what we know. It's not based on what we're capable of. It's not based on our experience or our achievements or our capabilities. Our confidence as followers of Christ, no matter what we're facing in the world, no matter what we're facing in our personal circumstances, is rooted in the character of God, which is unchangeable. He is immutable. He doesn't change. He knows everything. He has all the power, and he's good, and he loves us. Paul here says, not all have faith, but God is faithful. It's a great reminder for us this morning. He said similar things in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. If you're wondering, what is faithfulness exactly? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What do we mean when we say God is faithful? We mean he does what he says he will do. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That even the moments where we find ourselves being faithless, he remains faithful. And you may remember this from Hebrews chapter 10 when we studied Hebrews together. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful gives us the ability to hold fast to our hope. The things that we confess, we can stand firm on because our God is true, because he is trustworthy, faithful to a thousand generations, it says in Deuteronomy. And so it's with this concept in mind of trying to comfort the church at Thessalonica, trying to remind them that in the midst of other kinds of faithlessness, God is faithful. We see here at the beginning of chapter three that Paul asks for prayer. He says, finally, verse one, uh, word one in verse one, he says, finally, which is an indicator that he's kind of winding up his thinking. But in his final thoughts, as he's going to write this out, he's going to give one more encouragement here at the end of this chapter. But at the top part, he says, finally, pray for me. I love this, right? Don't, Don't race past it. Paul has spent a ton of time in this book and in 1 Thessalonians and other books telling these churches what he is praying for them and that he is praying for them, affirming that he has these ongoing prayer for these these new Christians. But I want you to notice that he doesn't miss the fact that even though he is a guy who is dedicated to praying for others, that he doesn't miss the fact that he himself needs prayer. Neither should we. Neither should we miss the fact that in all of our efforts and in all of our, all of our prayers for others, the way you may be praying for the world, the way you may be praying for your family, the way you may be praying for your neighbors, we cannot miss the fact that even Paul, the Apostle Paul, saw it as an, uh, of importance and saw it as a necessity that others would be praying for him. He says, pray for me. We also should be seeking to have other people lifting us up before God as we're praying for them. He asks for prayer, but I want you to note here that he doesn't just pray for the removal of the trial that he's in, right? So we know he's in Corinth this time. If you want to read more about his particular circumstance, you can read that in Acts 18. We know that there are people who are falsely accusing him. We know that he's been physically abused. We know that there's all kinds of things that are happening in his life. And yet when he says, pray for me, he doesn't say, pray that I'll be comfortable or pray that nobody will be able to hurt me or pray that the people will stop lying about me. Here's his prayer. So based on the faithfulness of God, we see his prayer is a prayer of alignment with the character of God. He prays this in verse one of chapter three. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He's He's gonna ask for prayer for two things. But the first one is 
that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. In the midst of everything he's facing, in the midst of the accusations and the abuse, he's not concerned with his own physical needs. He's concerned with the purposes of God, with the faithful and steady purposes of God. He says, I need you to pray for me that God's word would speed forth and be honored. Now, the picture he's thinking of is the picture of a Greek race, right? He's surrounded in a culture where they were always doing these kind of Olympic-style games. And so he has this picture of of a runner who is speeding ahead of everybody else, unencumbered, nothing in his way. He's prepared the path before him. This, this message is going forward. Now, there are a lot of places in the Bible, in, particularly in the writings of Paul, uh, where he talks about himself as the runner. He says, I want to finish the race. I want to lay aside every weight. You've seen some of those passages. Here he's not talking about himself as a runner. He's talking about the gospel, the word of the Lord, the message that Christ has come. He says, pray for us that in our efforts, the word of the Lord would speed ahead and in the same way that a Greek runner then would stand victorious on the podium and receive a laurel wreath, he says, I pray that the word of the Lord will not only speed ahead, that it will be unencumbered and that it will rapidly spread, but that at the end of that spread, that it will be honored. What he means by that is not that the gospel would receive a wreath, but rather that the people who hear it would receive it as what it is, the very words of God. The very words of life and light. He says, I pray that God's word will speed ahead in me and that as a result of that, it will be honored by those who hear it. His focus is on alignment with God's purpose, not on his own safety, not on his own contentment, his own satisfaction. He cares about carrying God's message forward. In fact, what he's praying for here is essentially the opposite of what we're hoping happens with, uh, with COVID-19, right? Everything we're doing as far as being intentional in separating out and creating distance and you know, protecting ourselves from germs is, is in an effort to try and slow down the spread of that thing and to make sure that it doesn't take root in the lives of those we care about or those are at high risk. Everything we're doing is to try and decrease that. What he's praying for here with regard to the gospel is exactly the opposite, that it would speed up, that it would be fast like a runner, and that it would be honored everywhere he goes. He's praying that God's will would be done in and through him. Not only that, look at the second part of his prayer. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, number two, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. He says, pray that the word speeds ahead and is honored, just like it happened there in Thessaloniki, but secondly, he prays for deliverance. He prays that we'd be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now, when we think about deliverance from wicked and evil men, our minds probably immediately go to physical violence, right? We've seen uh, we've seen testimony of that throughout the scriptures. We see it in Acts that those who are following Jesus are dealing with physical abuse. They're put, being put in jail. Jesus himself said, if you follow me, they're going to beat you and they're going to flog you and they're going to drag you in front of their magistrates. So there is a piece of this, even, even what Paul says in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is about bearing up underneath physical attack or physical affliction. But I want you to note here that, that in the sequence in which this comes, I don't think Paul's just talking about being delivered from physical violence. In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he's already talked about the kind of oppression that comes through false teaching. The kind of oppression that comes when faithless people either pretend to have faith or try and discourage or distract people from the faithfulness of God and from God's faithful purpose. So here when he asks for prayer, he doesn't just ask that the, that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored, but he's praying for deliverance. And I think that deliverance is twofold. I think it is a deliverance from the physical attack, 
But it's also a deliverance or freedom from the false thinking and the false ideals that would be perpetuated by those who are faithless. He says, deliver us from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You see, we are just as susceptible to ideas that are counter to the faithful purpose of Christ as we are to physical abuse. I actually don't think many of us living in America will face, at least not in in, in this generation, we face a lot of physical abuse for following Jesus. But we are constantly at risk of being dissuaded or being discouraged or being derailed by faithless thoughts and ideas. Opposition, as we see it in the scripture, does not always come in the form of pitchforks and torches. It's not always people trying to beat us up and drag us off to jail. Sometimes that opposition comes through deception or through idolatry. Sometimes it comes through a love of pleasure or of a selfishness or of a pervasive fear or anxiety. Let me tell you, there may be some of you whose minds have been dragged away from a focus on the faithfulness of God in these last few days or are in danger of being dragged away from the faithfulness of God in the days ahead because of all the different ideas, because of all the different you know, suppositions and all the different theories and all the different chaos that's out there, it's possible for us to be enslaved or captured by wrong ideas that would say the wrong thing about God. He says here, pray for us that the word of the Lord would speed ahead, but also that we would be delivered from the faithless, that we would be delivered. What does that mean? That we would remain, remain true, that we would remain aligned with the faithfulness of God. It's not unlike what Jesus himself prays in John 17, I do not ask, he says in 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, speaking of us, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It's not unlike what Jesus himself prays in the Lord's Prayer, which we see in the Sermon on the Mount, that he would deliver us from evil. That deliverance isn't simply that we wouldn't ever be around evil people, but that we wouldn't be enslaved by their ideals as well. Jude chapter 20, or Jude 1, there's only one chapter, verse 24, speaks about God this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This God is able to keep us from stumbling, but there are all kinds of sources that would want to trip us up that would want to cause us to stumble. It's just the opposite of what Paul is praying for here. He says, I pray that that the word of the Lord would speed ahead in me and that I would be delivered from wickedness and evil. It's all about alignment. Alignment with the faithful purpose of God. And it matters who we're aligned with, not just in our sort of activity, but it matters who we're aligned with even in our thinking. I remember when I was in high school, when I was a freshman in high school, um, I went to public school for the first time. I'd been in private school growing up. And I had a little bit of a hard time making friends. I, I was not as social maybe as my mom would have liked. And at the time, uh, I would come home every day and my mom would be like, did you make some friends? Did you get to know some people? Like, have you sort of built like a group or whatever? And I, most of the days it was like, not really. But then about four or five weeks into school, my freshman year, I did finally meet these like cool people and they were like very welcoming to me and they kind of invited me in. So I remember coming home from school and my mom, you know, said the same thing. Like, have you made some friends? And I was like, yeah, I did. I, I made some friends. It's awesome. I finally have some, like, people to hang out with during lunch. We hang out across the street, you know, in the park from the school during lunchtime. It's awesome. They're really cool. She's like, well, tell me about them. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Well, like, our group, we call ourselves stoners, you know, and it's really, it's pretty awesome. They're really, she's like, wait, What? And I'm like, yeah, we're called stoners. Like, we wear black jackets and, like, heavy metal T-shirts and whatever. And she's like, Darren, uh, stoners are people who use drugs. And I was like, 
no, that's not true. Stoners are like cool guys who hang across the street and smoke cigarettes. She's like, I'm not sure those are cigarettes. And I was like, what? You know, and all of a sudden, like I'd found my people, right? I found like my crew. These are the people I was going to be aligned with. And then I found out that the word stoner meant someone who was stoned, like using, you guys all know this already. So I ended up having to like find other friends. Uh, I'm not exactly, I don't remember specifically how I broke up with the stoners, but I must have found a way. Maybe they jumped me out. I'm not sure. But so much in our life has to do with alignment. So much in our life has to do with being aligned to the purposes of God as opposed to aligned to the fear and the purposes of mankind, the selfishness, the pleasure, all of those things. He says, preserve us or protect us from wicked and evil men, deliver us, and that the word of the Lord would speed ahead. Then he talks about the faithlessness of men. Look at verse two at the end. And he juxtaposes that with the faithfulness of God, verse three. He says, but the Lord is faithful, full stop. Man may be faithless, the Lord is faithful. You and I would do well to wrap our arms around that truth in the midst of these times. He says this as he's thinking about the faithfulness of God, verse three, he says, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Why does the faithfulness of God matter at all? Well, number one, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons, but one of the things he describes here that the faithfulness of God does for us is it establishes us. We talked last week about this word establish and the idea that it's an architectural idea. It's the idea of pouring cement or pouring concrete, laying a cornerstone. This establishment is setting firm in a direction that God does that for us in the midst of a topsy-turvy world and all kinds of different ideas and all kinds of different things that would threaten to sort of, you know, tear apart the foundation you feel like you can stand on and all of the ways in which our lives can feel, uh, you know, upside down, God establishes us. He establishes us, not in our own thinking, not in the thinking of the culture. He establishes us in his faithfulness and in his truth that he basically pours cement around our feet and fixes us in alignment with him. That this faithful God will both establish us so that we're not on sinking sand, and he will also, it says here, protect us or guard you against the evil one. That there is talking about our enemy, Satan. And it's funny, I think there's actually a lot of misconception about the work of Satan in our world. I think a lot of people either think that Satan wants to kill everybody, which is not true. Satan is not out to kill people. He doesn't want your life to end, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. What Satan wants to do more than he wants to kill you, he doesn't want everybody to be like a Satan worshiper. He doesn't want us all to listen to, you know, satanic music and get pentagram tattoos and wear black robes and dance around a fire and kill chickens. Uh, That's not the goal of the devil. What's the goal of the devil? The goal of the devil is to disrupt us from our focus and establishment in the faithfulness of God. Satan doesn't want to kill us. He wants to turn us. He wants to cause us to stumble. It's what uh, Paul was worried about when he thought about the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What is Satan trying to do? Why do we need to be guarded against the evil one? He's trying to tempt us away from alignment with the faithful purpose of God. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 10 and 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes of the devil? To cause you to stumble, to cause you to question, to cause you to doubt, to cause the foundation that God has poured around you to crumble away. But it says here that God will, in his 
faithfulness both establish us and guard us from the plans of the evil one. I will tell you that probably, I mean, there's all kinds of literal risk with regard to the virus and all the things that are, there's, there's all kinds of risk there. But there is also an essential and great risk that in the midst of everything that's happening in our world, that you become a target for our enemy, that you become a target of Satan, that he would pull you away from a trust in the faithfulness of God in the midst of this. Because God is faithful, he will establish us and guard us from the schemes of the evil one. He goes on to say this in verse four. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Oh, I, actually, let's just stop there. For, this is actually a really cool thing to say to somebody, right? It's actually a really cool statement. He looks at them and he says, God is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And then he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Just think about what that phrase means. He doesn't say to them, I have confidence in you. I have confidence in your morality. I have confidence in your courage or your strength or your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't look at them and say anything about their greatness. He says what? I have confidence in the Lord about you. What's he doing? He's still aligned with the faithful purpose of God. He says, when I think about who God is, this faithful one, I have confidence in him and about what he's doing in you. This is a great thing. I I will actually say that in the midst of all the turmoil and things that are happening in our world, in the midst of so much that is unknown, as a shepherd and leader in this community, I have confidence in God about you, Fullerton Free. I I feel really excited about the ways in the coming days that we will have the opportunity to make manifest this unity and sacrifice, to to put on display revolutionary kindness and radiant peace and prophetic engagement. All of the things we've been talking about, I have confidence, but I don't have confidence in just our ability to try our hardest. I don't have confidence in that. I have confidence in the Lord about you. It's one of the the coolest things that you can rest in is confidence in God and about his work in other people. This is what he says the confidence is about in verse four. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. That you are doing and will do the things we command. I don't know about you, but I'm not the kind of person who loves to be commanded, right? So the moment he's like, hey, I, I have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing the things I told you to do. There's kind of this rebellious piece of me that's like, Oh, no, you didn't, right? You don't command me to do nothing. Like, I I do what I want to do. I'm an American. I'm free. I go where I want to go. But understand that there is a role for, like, authoritative command in the life of a disciple. That there are things that God has said, I want you to live like this. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. These aren't options. I think sometimes we sort of think about the Christian life as a buffet, right? Where we go, well, I really want to walk on streets of gold, and I really want to have my prayers answered, and I really want to have a fun community, and I want my kids to grow up you know, living a moral life, but, I, but I'm not interested in any of the rest. Well, you don't, you don't get to pick and take the stuff that you want, there is, a, there is an expectation that we will live in obedience in response to the grace of Christ, that we will live in obedient alignment with the things he's commanded. He says to them, he says, I have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will continue to do the things that I've laid out. Those commandments are commandments like we see in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, just to give you one example. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9, he said to them already, now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, 
and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He's given them some real specific commands here. He says, I want you to live in a certain way. I want you to live in a certain way that reflects and reveals a confidence in the faithfulness of God. So here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he looks at them and says, I have confidence in God about you that you're already doing the things I've asked, that you're doing the things I've commanded, that you'll continue to do them. So it's, it's in the, the context of an affirmation. He's saying, yeah, you're doing this. But the fact that he points back to the, the idea of a commandment is also meant to be a little bit of a kick in the pants for the people in their community who've treated the commandments of God as options. I think it's probably worth us as a community taking that kick in the seat of the pants too for the places in which we have treated the care for our neighbors or the love of other people or the idea of working quietly and diligently or loving the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength where we've taken those things as options as opposed to things that are the responsibility of followers of Christ. He says, I have confidence that you'll keep doing the things you're doing but understand they were commandments. And he finishes like this in this opening section. Look at verse five. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He begins this chapter by asking for prayer for himself and he finishes this opening section by asking a prayer of God. He says, I'm praying that the Lord will direct your hearts. We've talked about this idea of having your hearts directed. Remember, heart doesn't mean the organ that's pumping blood. Heart is meant to be the center of the moral character for the Hebrew person, right? He says, I'm praying that God will direct your hearts. He means that he will clear out any obstacle, that he will make straight the path. That he will direct your hearts to what? The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Paul says God is faithful. Not all men have faith, but God is faithful. And I'm praying that that faithful God will align your heart with his love and the endurance of Christ. Why those two things? Well, listen, and, and what does it even mean? What does it mean to have our hearts directed? Does that mean we're simply supposed to understand those things cognitively? That together he's praying that God will help us to just increasingly know that God loves us and that Jesus was steadfast. That in the midst of all the opposition and all of the affliction and all the people trying to drag him from his purpose, he remained enduring and patient and faithful. We see in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are we just supposed to consider it so that we know it? Well, that, that's a piece of it. There is a piece of this that is a cognitive understanding that God would direct our hearts toward his love and the endurance of Christ or the steadfastness of Christ. There's another piece of it that, that is absolutely about reciprocation. That the more I meditate upon the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ on my behalf, that I am then motivated and compelled to return the same in kind. That I love God and that I am steadfast in the things that God has called me to do because of his steadfastness on my behalf. That I consider his endurance so that I also will endure. So it is absolutely sort of a recognition. It's also a reciprocation. And don't miss the fact that in this same thing, God directing our hearts to these things, he's praying not just that we would recognize it, not just that we would reciprocate it to God, but that we would replicate it. That we would replicate it. 
that the more I understand the love of God for me and I love him in return, the more I understand the steadfastness, the perseverance of Christ, even in the midst of great trials, that Jesus never called it a day. He didn't go, ah, the people don't appreciate it. My own people rejected me. People trying to kill me. They're lying about me. They're doing all these things. I'm out. That he endured, that endurance should motivate me to endure in my faithfulness to God, but also it should motivate me to replicate the love of God and the steadfastness or the endurance of Christ in my community in the lives of my neighbors, in, in the midst of a culture and a city where people are scared and grieving and heartsick and worried, we have the opportunity not just to recognize God's love for us, but to reciprocate that and to replicate it. In fact, as I finish this morning, I, I would want to read, I, I made a prayer here for us, for you. The idea is not that we're asking God to change things in our environment, but that we're asking God to change us to align us with his faithfulness and his faithful purpose. Let me read you this prayer. It comes straight out of this text, but this is my prayer for our family in this season here at Fullerton Free. I'm praying that the word of the Lord will speed ahead and be honored through you, and that you won't be distracted or hindered by faithless men or women. I'm praying that the Lord is faithful to ground you in truth and preserve you from Satan's schemes so that you can continue to obey God's word and reflect his love and Christ's endurance as you yourselves grow to understand those things more and more. That's my prayer for you. And I will say, my hope is that in the days and weeks ahead, you would pray those same things for me. That I would be reminded again and again, that you would be reminded again and again, that not all have faith, but God is faithful. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would fix our eyes upon you, that you would direct our hearts, remove any encumbrance or hindrance from a clear pathway to both a recognition and a reciprocation and a replication of your great love and the endurance or steadfastness, the perseverance of Christ. You are faithful and when my eyes look to you and I remember your faithfulness, I recognize that you will establish me, that you will establish us and protect us from the enemy's schemes so that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and we will be delivered from the faithlessness that would otherwise occupy our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.